Hey folks, Gerald Kirk here, and I'm excited to share that this season of the Higher Ground Society podcast is supported in part by the Alabama Humanities Alliance, a state affiliate of the National Endowment of the Humanities. Any views, findings, conclusions, or recommendations expressed in this podcast episode do not necessarily represent those of Alabama Humanities Alliance or the National Endowment for the Humanities. Now, let's get to the show. Welcome back, everyone, to uh, the very first episode of the second season of Higher Ground Society podcast. I am super pumped with the conversations that we came, I came up with. Uh, um, they went very well, and so I'm excited to um, kick off another season. Um, we're starting this this new season in September, which, uh, beginning uh, September 15th, is actually. Hispanic Heritage Month. So I, I love months, especially months that are, you know, dedicated to different um, groups of folks, uh, the opportunity to learn about the history and culture and all that jazz. And so I thought it would be remiss if we did not take the time to um, learn about Hispanic heritage. And so to do that about Hispanic heritage and everything that all, all that encompasses, uh, I've brought along um, uh, Dr. Carlos Aleman. Hello, Dr. Alaman. Hello, how are you? Thank you so much for having me. Ah, great. I mean, thank you for agreeing. I mean, so I just have to preface this by saying most people who are guests on the show just get random emails from someone named Gerald Crook, and that was definitely the case in this case. And so, again, I'm very grateful that you you opened the email and, <laughs> and thought of a good idea. <laughs> of course, of course. So um, if you will, please, uh, please tell us who, who you are. Sure. Uh, I am Carlos Aleman. I am the Chief Operating Officer of the Hispanic Interest Coalition of Alabama. Mm -hmm. I've been at HECA now for about three years. And in January, I'll be transitioning into the Chief Executive Officer role. Um, and so we're excited about that. We're in the transition right now. Um, me personally, I was born in Nicaragua. And my family migrated to the United States when I was about two years old. I grew up in San Francisco, California, so I consider myself a West Coast kid. I grew up in the Mission District there, a uh, immigrant neighborhood, Latino immigrant neighborhood in in San Francisco. And I went to school in Santa Cruz. I got my BA in history at UC Santa Cruz. And from there, I went and pursued my doctorate in history and Latin American history, and specifically specifically uh, from Michigan State University. Um, from there, we eventually moved to Atlanta. That's where I met my wife in Michigan. And then we moved to Atlanta because she got a job at the CDC. I came to uh, Alabama because I was a professor of history for five years at Sanford. And then I jumped to the nonprofit sector in 2018. Brilliant. Yes, I love that trajectory. It's a very, very smooth trajectory from what it sounds like. Um, and, and I love how... Um, the things that you studied kind of go on into your, your nonprofit work and it, it just made very, very well. I don't, I don't know if that happens very often for most people, but, <laughs> but it, it sounds like it, it went well. Yeah, no, I think I like thinking about it as my personal history, my personal lived experience really uh, led me to study what I want to really learn about. Mm -hmm. And so now my, my scholarship, right, my research experience then fed into my professional experience, right? So both my personal life, my intellectual trajectory and my professional service are all dedicated to working to improve conditions for Latinos where I live. And um, it's something that I'm very committed to. It's something that is really rewarding. Mm -hmm. And um, I have found that I am in a place where I am the most fulfilled right now. Sure. 
That's amazing. I love that. So so this, the whole po- purpose of the podcast, again, is like, you know, we're talking to folks who are thinkers and creators, um, people who are in the arts and the humanities. And so, so you have this humanities background. So I, I love this. This is perfect, right? So um, someone with a humanities background is being able to do some work. That, I mean, I, if you ask me, all humanities work is applicable to any, you know, Absolutely. part of the world. But here, here you're saying your profession, your, your research work in the humanities directly um and in, in, in empowers you to do work in the in the nonprofit sector. So I love I love thank you for sharing that. That was awesome. And I think that, you know, just I'll put a plug in there for alternative academic careers, right? There's a lot of folks who get PhDs and um were trained mostly and only really to become professors. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately the market isn't built for that. There's a right. saturation of people with PhDs and not enough jobs exist. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think that um, my ability to be able to use the skills that I learned as a as a researcher, right, and then transfer them and apply them to the nonprofit sector, have been has been really good, right, and eye opening. And so now sometimes I even talk to folks about, okay, so you want to get out of academia? These are some things that you should be thinking about, right? Sure. And, and we can have a whole conversation about that. But. We really can. It's very tempting. <laughs> we might get back into that. That's, I mean, that's great. Uh, but I suppose let's kind of start there in academia. What, what, I mean, I guess you kind of touched on it a little bit, but what made you pursue studying history in particular? Yeah. Um, history for me was the way that I got to learn about myself and my family first and foremost. You, know, you have to remember that I came to this country at two years old. Mm-hmm. Nicaragua, when I when my family leaves in the 1980s, is coming coming into a revolutionary government in 1979. The Sandinistas win the revolution, overthrow the dictatorship that had lasted 40 years, right? And so my family is living there, and then U.S. intervention is about to arrive that year that we leave, and there's going to be or there was an eight-year civil war, mm-hmm. right? Basically from 1982 till about 1990, mm-hmm. um, and, and so. It's political chaos, yeah. right, and disruption. And so my family was trying to flee that at the same time. So I'm growing up in San Francisco, not fully understanding or grasping how we came to this country, what our history is. And so in high school, in my Spanish class, I had a great Spanish teacher, Mr. Medrano. I still remember him. And he's the first person that ever spoke to me about Nicaraguan history. And it just blew my mind. Right. It was, he was the first person to really get into it about the U.S. intervention, about Nicaraguan politics, about what people what people were fighting for. And it was fascinating because then I would go to my family and ask them these questions. I'm like, so what was going on? And as it turns out, um, I had folks in my family that were on both sides of the war. Wow. So then you have folks who are like, well, this part's true. Uh, well, you're just reading this in a book. You don't know what you're talking about. Right. And so then that spurred me to even dig in deeper than okay I was like maybe there's more to learn here and so I started pursuing and reading a lot of history books about Nicaragua uh, I eventually started traveling down there little by little as an undergrad and by the time I was in graduate school I was just fascinated by it and then it transformed and evolved in where initially I was interested in Nicaraguans coming to the United States and why we came and what was the historical situation there but what I discovered is that most Nicaraguans actually do not come to the United States. They go to Costa Rica. Mm, okay. And so I wanted to figure out what that experience was like, right? Uh-huh. Um, and in a lot of ways, um, Nicaraguans are marginalized in Costa Rica. They are blamed for everything, crime, poverty, um, what have you, right? And, and so then I was fascinated by that. But that's where initially why I wanted to study history, really to get, get a grasp on why my family migrated. And then it became a whole situation as to why do Nicaraguans move right and what does that lead to and what is their lived experience um and so it's just something that really just grabbed me and it was personal but then it became broader sure sure so i mean you said you said a couple things there that are not in the script so to speak (laughs) so we're going off script a little bit but i'm very curious you said that overwhelmingly nicaraguans don't come to the united states they go to nicaragua why is that well, Costa Rica of the Central American countries is the most economically stable. Okay, sure. Okay. And they haven't experienced a civil war since 1948. So mm-hmm. political stability, economic stability, and proximity all explain why Nicaraguans primarily go to Costa Rica. 
Costa Rica is on the southern border of Nicaragua, so it's just easier to get there, okay. right? Um, and, and we have a long history, at least a century, of Nicaraguans migrating to Costa Rica for a variety of reasons. Mm-hmm. So then you have familial connections, you have um, economic pull factors, mm-hmm. right? And, and so there are just long-established networks that already exist that really draw people to Costa Rica. And of course, a shared language, similar culture, similar food, that makes it a little easier. Whereas the other countries, like what we think about other Central American countries that come primarily to the United States, what you consider or call the Northern Triangle, which are Honduras, El Salvador, and Guatemala, they come to the United States because the United States in a lot of ways is the closer country um, in terms of economic conditions. But also, you also have longer histories of U.S. intervention in those countries. Sure, yeah, yeah, yeah. Right, so there's a kind of relationship there mm-hmm. uh, of the United States being present. That also exists to a large degree in Nicaragua, but Costa Rica is just closer and there's a familiarity there. I learned something, and I, I'm sure that the people who are listening probably learned something too, because, I mean, these things are very intricate. And the, the other thing that you talked about, whereas, you know, the, the Nicaraguans in in Costa Rica, how they kind of, how they are more marginalized in that country. I think a lot of people think it's kind of like one direction. Like you think of, you know, someone, you think of someone coming from a quote unquote developing country, coming to a more developed country. That's how they, and they always have, you know, this kind of conflict there or this, this, this experience there. And you did say Costa Rica is more, is, you know, stable, but we don't typically think of it as like, you know, one of the quote unquote leading countries in the, in the, in the world. So you have these countries who are kind of on the same level so to speak but there's still kind of this these same marginalization issues you know that's well, like well, that's interesting and so i think that you have to consider that there's most of the migration that we talk about in this country and because uh, we we center the united states it's south north right people coming from the southern hemisphere right. central hemisphere and, and coming to the united states but a lot of migration is south south right Sure. And so when you have your long history, so you have a history of, let's say, Peruvians going to Chile and then them experiencing marginalization as a result. Haitians going to the Dominican. Okay, right. Yeah, oh, yeah. Dominican yeah. going to Puerto Rico mm-hmm. and, and, and these things repeating themselves. Salvadorans and Guatemalans going to Mexico, right? And, and then being excluded and, and uh facing discrimination in those countries. And so similarly, Nicaragua to Costa Rica. So there's a lot of history here of folks moving to their neighboring countries and and facing challenges there. But to your point, it's not something we think about or talk about. Right. For me personally, I have to think that these folks are kind of, are instead building like some kind of solidarity because they have some kind of shared experience, whether it be from US intervention or just from being in the same region or something like that. But kind of busted my bubble just now. <laughs> it's not necessarily that way. And nationalism is a, is a powerful drug, right? It's a yeah. hell of a thing. And, and also, we have our own histories of race in sure. Latin America, right? So Costa Ricans broadly consider themselves white. Sure. Mm-hmm. Right? And so you see Nicaraguans who are at least in the public imagination considered to be uh, not white right. and, and um, are more indigenous looking. And so there's a lot of racial discrimination along those lines as well. Interesting. And you see that same Haiti going to Dominicans, Dominicans see them as more black. Mm -hmm. And then they experience racialized uh, marginalization as a result of that. Absolutely. I've definitely heard of that, that, that little rift. I had to uh, take African-American history. It's interesting that we were kind of pigeonholed into this, but it was like African history or Latin American history in college. And so uh, unfortunately I did opt for African histories. I don't know a lot about Latin American history. Um, Thank you so much for elaborating on that. Um, And so I guess, I mean, there are a lot of, I mean, I can answer this myself, but why would you say Latin American history in particular is important? I think, you know, history in general, you know, it's like our, our past roadmap to the future, or, you know, like that people, you have that kind of thought about it, but specifically why is Latin American history important? Well, you know, I think Latin American history is fascinating because it offers an interesting parallel to U.S. history, right? I think if we compare them, right? You have similar histories of imperialism and empire and colonization, mm-hmm. right? Um, but you also, and, and you have histories of slavery, right? And, and, and slave folks coming over here, uh, but you also have uh, 
challenges in how people come together, right? Whereas in the United States, the folks that came from England, they were not playing about racial mixing, right? Whereas in Latin America, it's a little bit more fluid, right? Uh, and, and so you have a much more mixed race society mm-hmm. in Latin America. I think that it, it shows how, how that can come about and, and what are um, legacies of that. Not to say that they're any better than the United States, but they're different. Absolutely. Right? Different. Um, they uh, also, I think you can explore ideas of democracy in Latin America as a as an experiment, right? That has at times succeeded and at times not so much and, and failed. But Latin America is critical to understanding how the United States became what it is. Sure. Because we like to think of the United States as this beacon of freedom and democracy. And a lot of ways it is, but at the same time, you also have to realize the United States is an empire and its empirical uh, backyard is Latin America. That's where it learned to become an empire, right? By intervening in Latin America, by its economic intervention, its military intervention. It doesn't become a superpower if it doesn't learn how to exploit Latin America. And that's what it does. Yeah. And I think it's and the thing about that, and I think a reason why a lot of people don't really understand that is because obviously there's been an intervention in, 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 you know, interaction since. I mean, I I don't I can't give you an early date, but I know for, for my for my own purposes, I didn't really learn about the interaction until the 80s era. You know the the era of Reagan and all that. We typically in in in, in schools we don't tend to get that far in history, right? Yeah. And so we, I think that's I think that's what I personally don't know a lot about. You know our involvement of the relationships there because it's just it's it's very it's curated in a very very particular kind of way <laughs> the way that it's presented to us. But you know if you think about just how the United States even expands west, right? Sure. The Mexican American War, eighteen forty eight, manifest destiny, right? As to how they uh, are able to take half of Mexico and have it become part of the United States, right? Mm-hmm. You can't talk about the United States if you're not talking about Latin America, and right? there's just no way to really understand it, yeah. right? If you think about how they get involved in Cuba in eighteen ninety eight with the Spanish American War, right? Mm-hmm. Fighting a European power to secure these colonial islands right sure. and then you have them how that's how puerto rico becomes a part of the united states and so we still have a colony right we don't want to think about puerto rico as a colony but that's what puerto rico is they are a commonwealth is what we call it officially but puerto ricans who live on the island are second class citizens because they cannot vote if they live on the island yeah right and so you got you get to understand the the, the contradictions of our rhetoric when you look at latin america mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. And then that actually reminds me of a, um, another podcast. Shout out to, I mean, I don't know if they've been listening, but <laughs> shout out to the Through Line podcast that's by NPR. They had at least one or two episodes that talks exclusively about Puerto Rico and its, and its relationship to the U.S. and basically what you just said in a nutshell. And it was into, into depth. So if you're interested in learning more about that, um, you should. that's the one resource. We'll probably see if we can find some other resources to share about these things that we're talking about. But um, thank you. I mean, I think you, you, Pretty much answered the question very beautifully. Like you can't talk about the U.S. or U.S. history without talking about Latin American history. It's so inter- intermingled and inter- intertwined. That being said, do you have a specific moment or a specific figure in Latin American history that you that you um, love to think about or inspired you? Yeah. Well, you know, I'm gonna give you two stories, right? And they both are intertwined to exactly what I'm saying about the United States and Latin America. Mm-hmm. Um, so the first story, right, takes place in the 19th century, mid 19th century. Okay. There's a man named William Walker, American, right? He's uh, from Tennessee. There's actually a little plaque to him in, in Tennessee, right? William Walker. He is invited to Nicaragua in the 1850s to help resolve this conflict between conservatives and liberals. My man gets down there, takes over and is, declares himself president of Nicaragua. So you have in the 1850s, an American come to Nicaragua and becomes president, right? And then is, and he wants to do that because he wants to make Nicaragua a, a, a slave country, a nation again. Mm-hmm. Nicaragua had already abolished slavery. Mm-hmm. He's a Southerner. He wants to uh, expand slave power, right? 
uh, slave state power, mm -hmm. and he wants to ideally make Nicaragua a state of the United States, right? He makes English the official language, mm -hmm. and um, ultimately Nicaraguans are like, "What the hell is this?" Right. right? <laughs> and so they band with other Central American nations, and a, a, a united army of Central American countries fights William Walker and throws him out of the country. Right. Wow. He comes back, tries to retake power, and he's executed. Wow. So that's story number one. Okay. And but it tells you, you know, United States, you know, United America become president in a in a Central American country. Right. Second story is about Augusto Cesar Sandino, right? So he's a national hero. Um, the United States occupied Nicaragua from 1912 to 1932, okay. right? In the 1920s, Sandino brings together an army, right, of, of folks who are nationalists, who want to get the United States out of Nicaragua. So the, the United States sends in the Marines. Sandino and his army battle the Marines. This is not a national government, by the way, because the national government was supportive of the Marines being present. Sure. So Sandino takes a rebel army and fights the Marines and successfully defeats and, and, and has the Marines leave Nicaragua in 1932, right? Mm -hmm. But before they leave, the United States sets up a police force, a National Guard. The police chief is a man named Anastasio Somoza. Somoza eventually becomes president. One day he says, I want to declare peace with Sandino, invites Sandino to dinner and has him assassinated. Oh my gosh, wow. Establishing then a 40-year dictatorship with support of the United States government that isn't overthrown until 1979 when the Sandinistas, taking their name from Sandino, who had been assassinated, overthrow Somoza. Wow. And then, as a result, political instability, civil war, economic uh, downturn, and my country comes to this country. But those are two stories for you. That's, you know, and it's also a recurring theme because it also sounds, sounds like what's happened in the middle of the week. <laughs> you know, just everywhere it's 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 unfortunate but we can that's a long road but i want to go back to the first story you mentioned you said so the guy's name is sam walker william walker william walker so i thought where, where you were going with this i listened to a lot of podcasts and there was one random episode that told the talk about confederates american confederates who evacuated after the war they ran to south america latin america and so this is not the same right no, because this is pre-Civil War. Right, 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 okay. Pre-Civil War. So he was trying to make sure that he could expand slave state power. Gotcha. Right? Okay, well, he has some support. It's interesting because even Vanderbilt gets involved because Vanderbilt had a, a, a railway in, in Central America, a, a, a Pan-American railway, and he actually helps fund the folks who try to get William Walker out because he gets really upset with William Walker. It's fascinating history. It really is. And that's honestly one of my favorite parts about history is like these, so you have these large events that are happening with that involve like, you know, armies, da, da, da. but I like the intricate interpersonal relationships and the things that are happening on like a very small level. So I'm really interested in knowing what, so what do we know why he, why they fell out, Vanderbilt and? Yeah, because he, because he blocked his rail, railroad, right? Okay. So he was costing him money. It came down to money. <laughs> of course. <laughs> Interesting. I don't think I've ever heard his name associated with Latin American history. And I think that happens more frequently than we imagine. These guys had hands and some and everything everywhere. Do, can you think of somebody else that we that might like kind of another American figure that we probably would know that was involved in the Latin America? Yeah, I mean Nelson P. Rockefeller is involved during the Cold War, right? In Latin America. What? And, you know, he helped set up some propaganda for the for the war, right? And the war efforts. Uh, and, and during World War II, actually, and then in the Cold War. But they're involved. Um, there's, there's, I mean, there's a lot of folks who invest in Latin America. And, but he's the first one that comes to mind. Gotcha. In the 1940, World War II era. I mean, that's a good breadcrumb. I, I go down these rabbit trails. Um, I'm definitely sure I'll find I'll find more. So thank you so much. I mean, the way I set up our conversation was to talk, kind of lay a foundation about you know your background, you and you shared so much. Thank you so. Much. Um, but now let's kind of shift things to. So we've kind of focused on Latin America, but let's talk about Latin America in 
the United States, which I think is important to talk about to make a distinction. My friend, he corrects me all the time because I'll say, you know, so something's in America, which is a very United States cynic point of view. But we have to remember we're literally Lord, no, we're, we're part of North America. <laughs> and then you have what people would consider Central America and then also South America. Right. So that's right. It's important to make that distinction. So that's, and I want to talk about specifically Alabama. What can you tell us anything about the Latino Hispanic experience in Alabama? So what's the condition? Yeah, I mean, the first thing we have to know is that migration to Alabama in large numbers from the Latino community doesn't really start occurring until the 1990s. Okay. It's a relatively new migration. Um, Typically, as you may know, Migration from Latin America uh, centers on the coast, right? And or or Texas, right? So the American Southwest, the US Southwest, Texas, Colorado, California, or Florida, right? You have Cubans in, in Florida, right? You have Puerto Ricans and Dominicans in New York, typically Mexicans in the Southwest, right? And those are historical patterns, right? Of course, everywhere. There's movement now. And then you have, because of a variety of industries, right, agricultural, automotive, um, you have people come start coming to the Midwest, right? So you have good populations in Illinois and Michigan, right? And that start growing around the 1920s and 30s. Um, and then in the 50s and 60s, because of the Cuban Revolution in 1959, you have a bunch of people go to Florida, right? Uh but in Alabama and in the Southeast outside of Florida, really relatively little migration, but that starts changing in the 1990s. And you have explosions of growth in North Carolina, Georgia, and Alabama, right? Um, Some folks attribute that to the 1996 Olympics. Okay. So the Olympics bring about a huge manpower effort, Mm -hmm. right? You gotta construct all these things. And as you know, if you're gonna construct anything anywhere, you're gonna need my people, right? They're gonna come out and build it. And right. So in Atlanta, for people who don't remember, the 1996 Olympics were based in Atlanta. That's right. Right. So you have a huge influx of Latino laborers come to Atlanta to start building for the Olympics. And there was a crunch because there was fear that they wouldn't be able to finish the stadiums and the areas. And so they start hiring all these folks. And so I think that. Folks get to the South, see how the cost of living is really low. Mm-hmm. You have you can buy land for days, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, the tranquil way of life is appealing. And initially, people are welcoming, mm-hmm. right? And you see that in Alabama, right? Uh, there's jobs and there's opportunity and there's land. And that's what folks want. You got to remember that immigrants want everything, the same things that everyone else wants, which is an opportunity to raise their children in a safe place, give them a good education, find good jobs, and be able to buy a home where they can take care of their families. That's it, right? Yep. And, and and go to church, right? And just do what they want to do. Right. So the South, in a lot of ways, and I always like to say this, is so similar to yep. Latin America. It's, it's, it's more rural. It's really familial, like family-oriented. Mm-hmm. And it's religious, these are all things that are typically appealing to Latin Americans and Latinos, right? So it's a, it's a welcoming and, and, and a familiar environment in some ways. Um, unfortunately, that turns, right? And, and the turn, the, there, there starts to be some resentment hmm. a growing Latino population. And to be Latino in Alabama and in the Deep South is, is an interesting experience because you have to remember that racial relations in the South are mostly seen through the lens of black and white. Right. That's true. Right. So you have a long history of race in the South, but it's dominated by this uh, black, white tension and conflict and reconciliation sometimes. Right. Uh, So you enter a third group who comes in you're like, who are these people, right? Where do they fit in, right? And and ultimately, I think in a lot of ways, white Southerners see that, I don't know what they are, but they're not white, right? So I don't know we want them, right? Yeah. And, and they're taking our jobs mm-hmm. and they don't 
they don't speak our language mm-hmm. and they and they are they are they start to be seen as a threat mm-hmm. right um so in 2011 Alabama passes the harshest anti-immigrant law in the nation HB 56 right um HB 56 was a copycat law that was based out of Arizona's SB 1070 law and basically its aim is to to make life so difficult for immigrants that they will self-deport. They will auto-deport. So how do you how do you mean by that? How, how would it make life difficult? Because that sounds real Jim Crowy. <laughs> so. uh, and, and so there's a term that's coined that's called Juan Crow. Right? Okay. <laughs> okay. Uh, and so that really kind of captures how these laws try to terrorize communities. Huh. And so you do this by one, you would require teachers to report any kid who is suspected of being undocumented. I've heard of right? that. Mm-hmm. Um, you would allow police to stop anyone who they suspect of being undocumented. Hmm. Now, I'll ask you, how does a police officer, seeing someone walk across the street, guess whether someone is undocumented or not? Yeah. Right. So it is very much the definition of racial profiling. Absolutely. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, it makes it difficult for folks to rent apartments because no contract is 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 allowed to be upheld if signed by an undocumented immigrant. Sure. Right. Um, it makes it illegal for anyone to rent an apartment to an undocumented immigrant, give a ride to an undocumented immigrant. You couldn't transport. You would be... Uh, potentially arrestable if you helped an undocumented immigrant. Well, you say give a ride. How, how explicit is that? Like, it's, a, it's the law said if you transport an undocumented you could be arrested. Wow. That's, so yeah, that's pretty, so you literally, like so if someone needs to ride to the grocery store, that's still, that's, yeah. Wow. That's insane. And it had a, a, a provision called the Scarlet Letter provision where anyone who had been undocumented and was arrested, their names would go on a website and a picture. Right? And, and so it, it really targets, literally targets folks. Yeah. Um, and so when the law passes in 2011, uh, people flee. There's a lot of fear. Okay, sure. Initially, people just leave the state. If you see the the agricultural fields of Alabama in the immediate aftermath of HB 56 passing, that you have a lot of rotting crops, right? The industry mm-hmm. suffers. Yeah. Um, but there was, in a way, a silver lining to HB 56 in that eventually and relatively quickly, people start organizing it. Okay. Organizations like the Alabama Coalition of Immigrant Justice start organizing all over Alabama. And, and, and getting folks to come out of the shadows and say, no, we're here, mm-hmm. right? Um, organizations from across the country start putting organizers here to help people fight back through protests, through March letter writing campaign. Um, there's legal assistance provided, right? The SPLC, the ACLU, Alabama Appleseed, and HECA all file a lawsuit against the state of Alabama. Okay. And eventually the worst um, aspects of the law are taken out, right? The harshest provisions. Okay. And, and so in some ways it's, it's, a, it, it, it's a victory. There are still some small provisions that exist that make life difficult. For example, to get a business license in the state of Alabama, you need an Alabama driver's license. So an undocumented person can't open a business if they can't, demonstrate an Alabama driver's license. Wow. Right. So you, that means you're you're purposely leaving people out of contributing to the economic system here. Right. You are denying entrepreneurial entrepreneurs their ability to build something, to create something, to create jobs. Mm-hmm. I mean, in a lot of ways, Alabama would rather shoot itself in the foot than to allow immigrants a, a, a place. Yeah. That happens a lot. <laughs> a lot of different sectors, but yeah, it's, yeah, it doesn't surprise me, unfortunately. And so there has to be, you know, I think some common sense approaches here, right? These are things that 
would benefit all of us, right? Immigrant right. and non-immigrant alike. Mm-hmm. Um, because we also have to consider that in areas like Albertville, where there's poultry processing plants, okay. in areas like Russellville, in areas like Clanton, mm-hmm. these towns were dying. Right. There's the influx of immigrants that have saved them. Mm-hmm. Right. Our population in general in Alabama is getting older. Yeah. Yes, it is. Right? And, and there's not a high enough birth rate to maintain the population here. People also, young people, black and white, are leaving the state for other opportunities. The only reason that Alabama is even able to maintain or increase its population by any art is the immigrant population, right, that has arrived to save some of these towns. Mm-hmm. And this is despite arriving in a place that doesn't always welcome them. Yeah. I think right. that can also be said on a larger scale, too. We're talking specifically about Alabama, but I mean, that the, the country as a whole, really. Right? Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. Absolutely. It's unfortunate that that trend. Um, but I mean, so is there anything else that you can can say to that to that end? I mean, that's a. I learned again. I'm learning a lot just from from this 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 situation. So I mean, that was 2011. But HP 56, when they take the teeth out of that. Yeah, uh, that was about 20. I want to say 2013. 2013. So in 2021, what kind of changes have been made or improvements? Hopefully, have been made. Sure. And there have been improvements, right? I think that you see a, a growing and dynamic community, right? You see a, a, a community that is resilient. Um, you can see that with the rise of these grocery stores that are large, right? If you go down the street here in Green Springs, in Homewood, you'll see a large supermarket, Mi Pueblo, right? Mm-hmm. And, and you'll see language, Spanish language radio stations, Spanish language newspapers. Mm-hmm. You see a, a community that is growing. Um, actually, from the 2010 census to the 2020 census, which we just completed, you saw a population that was uh, estimated to be at 3.9% in 2010 and is now 5.3% in 2020. So that's a pretty big increase for that population. And you also have to consider that that's still most likely an undercount. Sure. Right. And it's really hard to count black folks and it's really hard to count Latino folks, right? Latinx folks. And so uh, we were a huge part in making sure that Latinos were being counted during the census. And so we're happy with that rise, right? We want to demonstrate that there's a growing presence. Um, I think that, you know, you not just economically, but socially, you see more and more uh, Latinos affecting the, the fabric of our communities. I mean, if you look at the schools, if you look at the elementary schools, you're seeing more brown kids in these schools, right? So I think that the state and our leaders have to take into account, what are we doing to make sure that these folks are going to stay in Alabama, right? Otherwise, we're going to see the same thing that's happening with our young black and white folks who are talented leave the state. So the state overall needs to create more opportunities to uh, attract and, and keep um, this population. This sounds like a lot of the work that you're doing with the organization that you're CEO of, um, HICA, which is the Hispanic Interest Coalition of Alabama. So can you tell us also how you all all became to fruition and then share more about the work that you all do? Sure. Um, You know, we are established in 1999, right? Uh, HICA becomes an organization and is founded by Isabel Rubio. Okay. So like I was saying, like in the 1990s, you have a growing Latino population that didn't previously really exist here. Of course, you had people who have been here for decades that are Latino, but in small numbers. But in the 1990s, you start seeing a a growing need. And so folks are saying, like, how are we going to make sure that these folks are going to be able to navigate Alabama, right? You have to remember that there was no language access. There was no, no one speaking Spanish. There's no Spanish signs. So what do you do if you want to enroll your kids in school? What do you do if you want to even just turn all the lights in your house? How do you call a utility company? How do you call the police, right? And so initially, HECA starts out as an information and referral organization. Okay. They're calling in like, hey, I need help with this. Can you help me with that? And we're just providing information so that folks can stay connected. Mm -hmm. From there, which was just Isabel on a phone in a lot of ways, right? We've grown to a 26-person organization, with a budget of about over $2 million. Wow. 
with four major programs, right? And so our first program is Strong Families. And there, we're just making sure that people are having their needs met, right? Right. Like, so a lot of boys, direct services, case management, um, they're in a crisis situation. How do we help them out? Mm-hmm. Um, they need someone to read a letter for them. They need to call the police. We have relationships with law enforcement okay. as, as a trusted community organization so that folks can come here and file police reports. Because a lot of times people are scared to call, call the police outside of here for fear that police will call immigration. Sure. Right. And so we have MOUs with law enforcement to make sure, hey, what we want to make sure of is that we take care and protect someone who's been a victim of a crime, right? And so we're able to do that. Uh, we also have support groups there if someone's been a victim of domestic violence, right? And, and, and so that's strong families and we do trainings uh, around how to work with our population, right? Then we have our citizenship and immigration program that helps anyone who's eligible naturalize, right? So they're like, also if you have DACA to renew your DACA, to apply to become a lawful permanent resident and adjust your status. And if you're eligible to maybe have a humanitarian visa. So there, like those two major programs are really to make sure folks are all right, right? Is there a crisis? Let us help you figure that out. Is there a way for us to adjust your status? Let's figure that out, right? So that these two programs are about stability, stabilization. Like how do we take away these things that are worrying you and make sure you're okay? Because you can't think about these other things if you're not okay. Right. 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 And then you have our third program, right? And then we start thinking about empowering communities program. That's where our um, civic engagement program lives, right? So there, if someone becomes a citizen, now we want to make sure you're registered to vote. Now we want to make sure that you understand the issues that are occurring in your community so that you can get out and vote, right? And do so in a way that you're informed and you're empowered and you can advocate for yourself and your family. Um, that's also where our college access program lives, right? So we want to let the young folks who are coming up are able to go to college. We take a two-generational approach. We're talking to parents and we're talking to students as to the importance of this because college for us is a family decision, right? Like, it's not just like you go out and, and, and make something yourself because we're talking about vulnerable communities where if you tell a family that their 18-year-old is not going to go get a job, you're also telling them, that you, you are taking away a potential breadwinner now, family dynamic. And they've been waiting for this young person to be able to work, to contribute, right? And so we try to talk to families about the um, opportunities that exist. But at the same time, we recognize those challenges and those are real challenges. So we're now also trying to grow a workforce development program okay. because not everyone wants or needs to go to college, but everyone needs a good paying job. For sure. Right? Not just a job but a good paying job where they can have careers and they can take care of their families and they can have a home, right? Um, so they don't have to work two to three menial jobs where they're struggling and still can't make ends meet. Right. And in that program, we're also now trying to stand up a policy arm because what we don't want to do is always be on the defensive. Right. Right. We need to figure out policies that are common sense, just like I was talking about. So is there some economic development policies that benefit everyone, right? But what are some, what's some low-hanging fruit here in our state that shouldn't ruffle any feathers. And if it does, I mean, that's okay too. But like, but there, there are some things that really can improve our, the lives of everyone, especially our community. Um, and then finally, we have our community economic development program. Okay. There's a myth that immigrants don't pay taxes. We help every year 250 to 300 immigrants file their taxes. Wow. Whoa. And they, and they could do that with even if they're undocumented, right? Because Uncle Sam don't care. Uncle Sam just wants his check. His right. check. Right. <laughs> so we do that with an I-10 number, individual tax ID number. We have a financial literacy program. We have a small business development program. We have the only HUD certified bilingual uh, counselor in the state of Alabama. Oh, wow. Okay. So we want to help people buy homes, right? And yeah. so that we do pre-purchase counseling and post-purchase counseling. And we're helping trying to... This program is about transforming people's trajectory, right? So mm-hmm. in our small business program, since 2014, he has helped establish at least 300 businesses in the state of Alabama. But what we discovered is that, okay, you have a business, 
But now you can't go to the bank because you have no credit or you've never been to a bank. And so we started, and banks, for, for a variety of reasons, but you know, it's not necessarily profitable for them to make these kind of lower um, level loans just won't serve the community because it's just, it doesn't make sense for them economically. Sure. But it does make sense for us to do that, right? And so we are now starting, we started a micro lending program in 2019. Okay. Right, to help um, these entrepreneurs, right? Great. And and so now we're intending to become a CDFI. We've established a separate LLC under the nonprofit called the Camino Loan Fund, which will allow it to become a community development financial institution. And so we'll take those risky loans and give them to our community to make sure that they can build. Okay. Right? And, and, and that's broadly speaking, what he could does. Wow, that's a lot. That's a tremendous yeah. amount of so many questions. Well, a few questions. Third program, you said civic engagement. Um, I'm curious to know, do you guys do any kind of, and this is kind of a, a, a maybe a dicey question, but I'm curious to know like representation, right? right? So how this Latino community, the Hispanic community within the state, um, do they have, is there, is there any political representation? Do, do we know of any uh, folks who are running for office or who have successfully attained office um, in their communities? So I'll say this, you know, in, in my very nonprofit voice, we are a C3 and we don't endorse any political candidates. Of course. Right? But of course, there is a need for political representation. And I don't know if you know this, but like um, last year, uh-huh. I ran for city council in the city of Homewood. I did know that. And yes. one, and okay. one, and and we think that I might be the first Latino elected official in the state of Alabama. In the state of Alabama. Mm-hmm. And, and so <laughs> there is a desperate need because I'll tell you, I don't want to be the only, right? I don't want to be the last, right? I think that if I am the first, and I'm not 100% sure, but if I am the first, there has to be a way to make sure that we're, we're, we're um, pushing for more representation, right? In our local communities, especially like in these towns that I'm telling you about where in some of these towns, the Hispanic population is reaching 50%. Right, yeah. The representation. Absolutely. Right? You need folks that are talking about our issues, the things that we care about. Right. And even just in terms of, I'm thinking in terms of like, you know, you guys are doing the accessibility, but I'm thinking of you know people like the language barrier, right? Like being able to, you know, communicate what's going on in the community effectively. Like that's something too that's I'm I'm concerned about. So, so yeah. I mean, that's one of the main things that we talked about in terms of even advocacy, language access, right? Because like with this pandemic that we've been living through, when the initial news was coming out and all these protocols were coming out, all of it was in English. In English, right. And <laughs> so yeah. we uh, immediately started translating uh, the notices from the Alabama Department of Public Health, the Jefferson County, Department of Health, the city of Birmingham, right? And eventually part of the city of Birmingham to uh, translate some of these things for them in the early period, right? But also advocating for, y'all need to be doing this in Spanish right away, mm-hmm. right? You're missing a large sector of the population that needs to know that they need to mask up, that there's options for getting tested. What are the requirements, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and with the, with the health crisis, we've been advocating from day one, stop requiring these Alabama state IDs. Nobody has those, right? Like, if you want to make sure that we're safe, healthy as a state, you need to make these things as accessible as possible, right? Uh, and so with vaccination clinics, with testing clinics, we've been making sure that folks can just walk up and get what they need. Good. Very good. Yeah, that's, it's, it's, <laughs> I'm just going to escape away from that. That's wonderful to hear. <laughs> I'm glad that someone, is, I'm glad you guys exist. Uh, whenever I learned that you guys are there, this is why I'm, I'm glad I was able to make the connection. I'm glad you're able to tell us what you do. Um, one of the other things I was curious about, you said, over 300 businesses you guys have helped. Can you give us an idea of the types of businesses that fall under this category? Yeah, you have a lot. Of, um, we have a lot, you know, um, restaurants, right? Of course. Sure. Right? Oh, we're helping people. There's a pizzeria, taco shops, right? Okay. Bakeries. Um, one of the loans that we just gave out to this um, young man for $25,000 is an auto detailing. A shop. Love it. And it's fantastic, right? Because that's going to be transformative for him. He can buy more equipment, he can grow, he can scale now, right? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there's some retail, 
-hmm. right? Uh, there's a used tire shop. Okay. There's a construction company. Okay. Oh, wow, nice. And, and so a variety of things, right? And just the ability of us to be able to walk with them, right? right. Because, you know, I think that there's this notion that we combat against that these folks are not capable, right? That's, that, they, that we need to somehow save them. But what I always tell people is that these are the most resilient people you've ever met. I'll tell you, yes. They left, they left everything they knew, mm -hmm. right? They from a different country to a place where they don't necessarily even know the language mm -hmm. to start all over. We just need to get out of their way, right? We, well, our job is to provide opportunities and remove barriers. That's, That's it. it. I love it. <laughs> like, <laughs> like they have the ability, the capacity, the desire, right? Our job is to just make sure that is there uh, an ability to provide training for a particular thing that they need? Is there a barrier that we need to remove? Mm -hmm. right? So that they can achieve what they want to achieve, right? It's not our place to tell them this is what you should do. Right. Our place is to make sure that they can achieve what they want. Love that. Um, I think uh, maybe some, uh, unfortunately, maybe some of that comes from that initial feeling of, you know, fear or resentment or, or something that you're talking about whenever the first wave of folks started coming in in the 90s. Uh, we just don't understand. Don't take the time to understand other people and see other people as ourselves, right? But um, again, I'm so I'm, I might be like a, a huge Hika fan now because um, <laughs> the work that you guys are doing is so needed. Um, I'm so glad they're around and I will definitely be following what you guys are doing for more closely from uh, here on out. Um, is there anything in Alabama in particular that inspired your work? I mean, other than you, you've been you've been here what eight, in eight years? Eight years. Um, yeah. So, is there anything here that's you see that's special that inspires your work or your studies? You know, I think that if, if you think about Alabama, you can't, especially in Birmingham. You can't um, ignore or um, overlook its civil rights history, right? We are in the cradle of the civil rights movement, right? I think that this is a place that challenged what was possible in the public imaginary, right? Like in the, mm -hmm. in the racial understanding of how this country functioned, right? and was willing to do so in a way that transformed right. the trajectory of this country. So, you know, if it's possible in Birmingham, it's possible anywhere, right? So I think that there's a certain um, power that comes from that, that knowing that we're in a place where folks risked everything and, and, and won, right? Yeah. And, and still, of course, faced with a lot of challenges, right? And there's still a long way to go, but we're surrounded by memories and stories of folks who have demonstrated that we shouldn't be scared. Yeah. Right? And, and so when I think about Birmingham, I'm inspired. That's right? good. And, and, and to be fair, I'm from California. Right? <laughs> yeah. When the prospect of me moving to Alabama First came up, I was like, oh, I don't know. <laughs> I was like, oh. And my wife's like, Alabama? Yeah. But, and, and this is not to offend Alabama, but I tell people I live in Birmingham and I rarely visit Alabama, right? Sure. I, I just, <laughs> sure. you know, there's something special about where we live, right? Like if you think greater Birmingham area and the, and the work that we do. Mm -hmm. um, and I thought that, you know, it, it's a it's a place that is ripe for greater change. Absolutely. And, and there's people. I'll say that the, the past that inspires me, but it's also the folks who are doing the work today, right now. Yeah, right now who are inspirational. Right, there's folks on the front lines today. <laughs> I mean, I got colleagues at the Alabama Coalition for Immigrant Justice, mm -hmm. Adelante Alabama Worker Center. Um, 
doing important critical work. Mm -hmm. Right? There's folks fighting for against poverty, against racial injustice, uh, against um, you know folks who have been incarcerated, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. Against hunger, and they do it here, right? And, and those folks are inspirational. Absolutely. And so. I, I just consider myself lucky to be able to stand beside them. Yeah. And learn from them. Yeah. And it's, I will say it's a, it's unfortunate circumstances that, you know, the, the, his, the legacies and the history and the environment sometimes creates this, ne this necessity for these people to do the work. But if you're looking for an example of people who are doing the work, who have the grits, who have the, the tenacity, you know, all the, it, there's no better place than Alabama, right? All these people that you're talking about, you're talking about Birmingham. I know a lot of people who are working in Montgomery, in yeah. the Black Belt. And I mean, I'm, I'm a little less familiar with the northern part of Alabama, but I do know that there are people who are in Huntsville, Florence, you know, up there who are also doing the, this incredible work and Mobile, of course, too. Like, again, the whole state is rife with this spirit of progress, <laughs> believe it or not. That's what people, a lot of people don't understand, though. They could think about that unfortunate negative history, but that is directly related to all the other work that people do to counter that. And so, so <laughs> thank you. Man, I think we, we have to remain hopeful, right? Right. Mm -hmm. that's, that's how we can continue doing this work. Mm -hmm. um, and so, you know, even um, the Black Belt, right? There's the Felicia Lucky at the Black Belt Community Foundation. Mm -hmm. What an incredible person and, and what the work that they're doing. I mean, there's just folks all over the place. Yeah making a difference absolutely and you said the 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 keyword great seg segue my final question i ask every person that comes on to the show what is your hope for alabama and it can be a very general question it can be something directly related to your work lay, lay the hope on me my biggest hope for alabama to be honest is that it becomes the place where my daughter wants to stay oh man yeah right? It is the place where, I mean, it's already home to her. This is what she knows. Mm -hmm. She is an Alabama girl. You know, I was talking to her the other day, and, and I asked her, are you Southern, right? <laughs> right? And she was, yes. And she's nine years old. Oh, okay. Right. Right. And, 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 and I asked her, am I? And she says, no, right? And I was like, that's true, right? In a lot of ways, right? And, and because I didn't grow up here, but she is. So I want, I'm happy and proud that she considers this home, but I want Alabama to be this place where she wants to stay, where she wants to build, right? Um, and we and we have folks who are working to get us to a place where we can really surprise people. Yeah. Right? Mm -hmm. And we can uh, show what our nation is capable of. Right. Absolutely. So that's my hope, right? That we become a better place that's more inclusive, that's more welcoming, that we build bridges with one another, right? And, and that we're really representative of the folks who live and work here. Brilliant. I love it. I love that. And you said your daughter's nine? She is. And she, so she that's is. a very perceptive nine. Let me tell you. <laughs> well, she speaks with, with a little twang, right? She'll be like, I love my family. And, and it's just things that. <laughs> that's beautiful. I think, yeah. I think, well, with you rooting for her in that way and for the state in that way and you doing the work that you're doing, I think that she has a very good chance. So we'll see. I'll definitely, we'll see what, 11 years, we'll see, or yeah, well, eight or so years. How that works out. I'd love to hear that, get an update on that. Um, but is there anything else you would like to share? Um, anything you want to plug? Anything you guys got going on in Hika that we need to know about? Yeah, I mean, you know, um, I'm grateful, Gerald, for the opportunity to be here with you today. I think that just to share the work that Hika does, mm -hmm. um, we are always looking for folks who want to engage with us, right? To walk with us. I think that there's um, a lot of opportunities to build bridges between communities and we are committed to that mission. Mm -hmm. um, you know, whether it's the annual tamale sale we have every December or okay. just like we had last week, there's opportunities to come with us and enjoy some of the cultural aspects of it, but also 
you can volunteer and, and help serve a community that is growing, that is thriving, that will make an impact, right? And so thank you for the opportunity. Oh my gosh, thank you for the opportunity. I mean, I learned so much. Um, I was a little nervous, I will have to, because again, I came in not knowing a whole lot, but, but I think you, you, you have shed a light on so much and I am, it's, it's just the beginning. I'm, I'm really hoping to endeavor uh, or endeavoring to learn more as I move forward. You know, like I said, you guys got a fan in me and Higher Ground Society. Absolutely love to continue and work with each other. Thank you so much for, for being a part of the show. Absolutely. Thank you so much. All right.